I don't remember what uh, book it comes from, but I remember this kind of interesting observation, right, from business and entrepreneurship. If you are picking a relatively niche, like or different or unusual business, then often you wouldn't have as much competition. Because I am so glad there are much more people building another app, for example, compared to people who really do want to do a hard work with a database is because, hey, you know what? That means my competition is in relatively few companies, not hundreds, right, or thousands. Chances are you haven't heard of the person who was just talking, and you probably haven't heard of his company either. And he's fine with that because, well, if you have heard of him, you're probably his target customer. On top of that, there's not a lot of other companies out there who can do what his company does, which means if you need the kind of services he can provide, well, you don't have a lot of other options. And as he was explaining, that's the benefit of providing a niche service. In this case, the niche service is database optimization. It's probably not something you personally need, but we can't forget that databases support almost everything we do on the web. And when a company's web service gets really popular and has to scale to support millions of users, their databases start breaking. When that happens, who does the company call to fix things? Well, they call one of the few people in the world who can help, Peter Zatsev, founder of Percona. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hi everyone, it's time for another episode of Webmasters, the podcast where we learn about internet history by talking with the people who have built some of the most important and impactful internet businesses and innovations. I'm Aaron Dinan. I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. Over the years, I've found one of the best ways to do this is by inviting successful entrepreneurs into my classroom to share their stories. At some point, I figured, why stop there? Those same stories would surely help other entrepreneurs. Why not record them and share them with the world, which is exactly what this podcast is for. And on this episode, we're talking with Peter Zaitsev, a successful entrepreneur who's going to help us dive into a very important and I think underappreciated business strategy, which is the strategy of positioning yourself in a niche market. But before we discuss that, I want to take a moment to thank the company that's helped make this project possible. Speaking of companies in niche markets, this episode of Webmasters exists in part thanks to the support of Latonas, which is a boutique mergers and acquisitions company that specializes in helping people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, content websites, and any other type of work from anywhere internet business. Admittedly, there isn't tons of demand for buying and selling internet businesses. It's not as popular as, say, buying clothes. But if you're the type of person running a profitable internet business and you suddenly find yourself needing a way to sell it, well, you'll be happy that a company like Latona's exists. Because, well, you know, that's exactly what they can help you do. Similarly, if you're interested in buying an already profitable internet business, you're going to be glad Latonas exists too because you can find listings for all sorts of businesses right now on the Latonas website. In other words, if you're part of that small niche of people interested in buying or selling internet businesses, and I'm guessing at least a few of you are, 
then be sure to check out the best place to do it, latonas.com. That's L-A-T-O-N-A-S dot com. This episode's guest, Peter Zaitsev, is an expert on databases. Databases, of course, are where most of the information on a modern website or web app is stored. That's everything from your username and password to the caption you added to that killer pic you posted on Instagram last week. In that sense, databases definitely aren't niche. In fact, just about every major website or web app or web service any of us use in a given day is built on top of databases. So I suppose to some extent we should all care about them. And when Peter's talking with non-database people, he often finds himself having to point this out. For many people, I would say, well, look, you use Facebook, right? For example, and say, oh yes. And you know, like sometimes this Facebook is kind of slow or is down. And they say, oh yes, that annoys me quite a lot. And then I'll tell them, well, you know what? In many cases, this is because their database is malfunctioning. And we are the people which help companies like Facebook to make sure their database is running solid and you can enjoy your social life, apps, and whatever 24-7. Right? So that's how I would explain it to somebody who has nothing to do with computers. But even though databases themselves aren't niche, being able to scale databases to support millions of simultaneous users is a skill most of us will never need. That's where someone like Peter comes in. Peter is an expert on database performance, and he spent most of his career helping companies scale their database architecture to be able to support more users. But of course, that's not where he started. Instead, Peter's story starts when he first discovered the internet while growing up in Russia. I was uh, born and raised in Russia. Internet out there was kind of coming, I think, slightly later and slightly different than in the US, right? People sometimes tell me, oh, remember those AOL disks they would send to everybody? I would say like, nope, I wasn't there at the time. So my involvement, I think, with something like internet started with something that was called FIDANET, right? And if you remember, that is something like email, news group kind of thing, which you would uh, connect with your modem, download that. That is how I was sort of exposed to the internet initially. And I think uh, then about 95, 96, I got the internet uh, in a place where I started. And what were you thinking when you first discovered the internet? What got you excited about it? Early internet was fantastic because it was raw and kind of wild uncharted territory, right? You could do anything, good, bad, right? Like, for example, things like no spamming laws or things like that didn't exist. It's like, hey, you know what? Uh, You can grab whatever email somewhere and uh, you can just send them all the like. Or you can make money on ads, right? I remember Facebook had like a banner ads with 10% click rate. Imagine that. People in the internet were so excited about such things as banner ads. We're actually clicking on them. (laughs) My first experience with the internet was I was actually working with a local company which was producing assembling kind of computers, which I learned a little bit of internet, kind of webmaster style, system administrator, right? Kind of IT guy at that time. And for me, because I have a math background, I always had this 
fascination with numbers, statistics, uh, so on and so forth. And so the first real uh, startup I had was their like internet counter. Something as a rudimentary Google Analytics didn't exist at that time. Wait, your first startup was like a Russian version of Google Analytics? That was a project called uh, Spylog. Early internet, like tongue-in-cheek names were fantastic, right? Now you probably would not call a service like that Spylog, especially if you're from Russia, <laughs> right? <laughs> but at that time, that was received very well by the early crowd and it really built a quite successful project around that since 99 to early 2000s. And what happened to that company? So just to be fair, in that company, I was a co-founder, right? And a kind of person number two. We had another person who was CEO. I was CTO, responsible for all the technical stuff. And uh, the company started going pretty good. Uh, there was a lot of potential, raising the capital, going really big. But then uh, dot-com bubble crash happened. And what was very interesting at that time in Russia, you would see a number of uh, venture capitalists came to Russia looking for deals a couple of years before, right? Because obviously there was opportunity and excitement about internet everywhere, but evaluations in Russia was a joke compared to Silicon Valley. But when the dot-com crash happened, those people just packed up and left. And in the US, you at least have a choice to come to Sand Hill Road and maybe beg for investment, right? In Russia, it's all kind of just evaporated. So our company had a hard time in this case. And uh, the challenge for us was not even kind of so much like a revenue operation, but uh, we were a company of Russian investments who were expecting with all that kind of momentum what the company will go big and fast. But then the future didn't look so rosy anymore. They kind of come and say, well, you know what? We know we invested for this amount, but now we think we won't like to have a whole company instead, right? Which is, well, reality of doing a business in Russia in the late 90s, early 2000s. And for my side, I kind of kept the job, if you will, but not my equity as a part of that transition. And, uh, well, I decided that is... <laughs> Not for me, obviously. So I uh, left the company after a few months. So people just took your company from you? And that was just kind of how startups worked in Russia back then? That seems a little weird. Yes, yes. yes. Well, uh, so for me, what the learning experience for me was saying, right, this, and then also some other things I have to deal with, you know, like bribes. And, uh, you know, I thought, hey, you know what? I want to have my own business again, for sure, but I probably do not want to have it in Russia. I thought I want to move uh, and uh, specifically to United States as this kind of land of entrepreneurial opportunity. Wow, okay. That sounds like a different entrepreneurial ecosystem for sure. Doesn't really seem like the kind of place that fosters entrepreneurial thinking. So out of curiosity, Growing up in that environment, how did you decide to start your own companies? My family were Russian scientists. So this is kind of probably as far from entrepreneurs, right, as you can get. And uh, I think my dad doesn't quite still understand what it 
makes kind of to run your own company, right? He's still asking me, oh, how much do they pay you? And I have to explain to him over and over again, dad, you don't understand. There is no way if you're running your own business. But for me, I think I just had this very big uh, feeling of independence. I uh, never liked taking orders or even the relationship with teachers often was very strange. I would often pick a fight and try and explain why they are on. And, uh, you know, some teachers loved it. Some teachers absolutely hate me as that uh, troublemaker. And I think as I was getting to that, that probably was the idea of, hey, you have to put yourself in a situation where you don't have to be taking orders because you probably wouldn't do very well. As someone who teaches entrepreneurship, I actually see this pattern a lot. Peter's story of being the student who questions the status quo and questions the authority of the teacher can make him, you know, not such an appealing student to teach, for most teachers anyway. Personally, I actually enjoy those kinds of students. But it's also what makes him the kind of person who would become an entrepreneur. After all, questioning the status quo and challenging authority structures is a big part of what helps entrepreneurs uncover opportunities for innovation. In Peter's case, not only did that skill help him start his company, it's also what helped him find his way out of Russia. Specifically, Peter's willingness to question and challenge things, what some people might call an abrasive personality, it actually appealed to an entrepreneur named Martin Mikos, who at the time was CEO of a company called MySQL AB, creator of the MySQL database. Thankfully, in my first startup, I had a lot of experience with databases, right, and the MySQL in particular. I did this kind of guy who was always trying the very early versions, and then if it would break, I would write a lot of emails saying, oh, look at that, uh, your software is junk, look at this bug and that bug, right? And Monty, uh, my school founder, he was happily the guy who appreciated that because others may have uh, think of me as a jerk, which, you know, probably was, but uh, he appreciated that and uh, he essentially given me the job in my school AB and I worked, I think, for a couple of years from Moscow and then moved to United States while working for MySQL. Would you mind giving a quick explanation of what MySQL is for people listening who maybe don't know much about databases? Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, so if you look at the modern world, right, and uh, even for many decades now, we store and process huge amount of data. And a lot of that data is uh, stored in something which is called uh, databases, like your bank's transactions, right? For example, storing some database somewhere in a bank. And uh, MySQL is uh, one of such databases which has become very popular during uh, their internet times. It's something which underpins, even now, companies like Twitter or Facebook it came to a fame largely because it is open source, which means unlike other databases like Oracle, which you had to pay a lot of money for, you could use MySQL absolutely for free. And that was very important, especially if you are a startup and don't have a lot of money to spend. Right, so that is what their MySQL is. 
And MySQL is really popular, right? Probably the most popular database on the web. So why and or how did MySQL become so popular versus all the other possible databases? Yeah, so, okay, let's uh, look at the kind of history here, right, which may be interesting. So if you look at the initial web before the dot-com crash, at that time, actually, a lot of the early-stage companies, they were built on a lot of commercial software. They would run something like a Sun Solaris, use uh, Oracle as a database, and so on and so forth. They would use kind of this traditional enterprise technology. Then the dot-com crash happened. The new generation of a company, they had to start with a fraction of a capital of those legacy companies had to, because nobody wanted to invest in the internet companies just after the internet bubble burst. And so at that time, a lot of the open source software come to raise. That would be Linux as a operating system, Apache as a web server, and the MySQL was pretty much right there at the right time and the right place, and it was the only open source database good enough for internet applications, right? And so it really became a dominant player at that time. Now, if you look forward now, what is like 15, almost 20 years later, MySQL still is the most popular open source database, but there is much more variety right now. There is so-called like NoSQL databases, right, growing such as MongoDB or Cassandra, Redis, PostgreSQL, is also very quickly growing and very popular for new applications of open source database. So now we think we're going to get much more variety in a database space than it was in early 2000s when pretty much all websites starting at that time would use MySQL as a database. Okay, and I've been dying to ask someone this for a long time who would know the quote-unquote real answer to this question. Is the proper pronunciation MySQL or MySQL? Remember, the MySQL was born in uh, between Sweden and Finland, right? So it's not native uh, English uh, speakers. And the traditional pronunciation preferred by the founder is MySQL. Like Y-M-C-A, MySQL, right? So that's how you do it. Now... In America, a lot of folks go by MySQL, right? So now you can use it one way or another, and it's fine. All right, let's call that debate settled. If you want to sound like you know what you're talking about when discussing databases, you should always say SQL and not SQL. As for Peter, he spent his next few years establishing himself as an expert in the MySQL industry by literally being a part of the team developing MySQL. However, in an odd parallel to his first startup, investors got involved and eventually new owners, which changed the fundamental core of the company and the vision he'd initially believed in. MySQL was uh, created, the culture of a company was what we are there really to make the difference in a world, kind of democratize databases and sit Oracle with this kind of newer, better, free database called MySQL. But then MySQL raised money, venture capital, 
And uh, naturally, a lot of company focus were shifting to kind of financial milestones from, hey, we are there to make a difference in the world, to a point where there have been some, what I would consider questionable technical, right, or some other decisions. And I found myself mentally, you know, like switching from talking about the company as we did X, we did that, when I talked to the people, to talk about they did X and they did that, kind of distancing myself because I sort of didn't want to be really associated that close with that company anymore. I could not wholeheartedly support the decisions of what this company was making. And uh, I understood that at that time that that is a time for me to leave. Tired of working for other people and being controlled by their needs, Peter was ready to start his own business. Unfortunately, Peter wasn't an American citizen, and that complicated his path forward. I thought I'd have to leave and start something on my own, but unfortunately, due to U.S. migration laws, I couldn't really create a startup in the U.S. and have a path to green card and to citizen, potentially. So I had to leave and uh, I went to United Kingdom, which at that time had much more open immigration policies. And uh, I started the corner out there in United Kingdom, uh, in London. Where did the idea for Percona come from? I mean, it basically began as a consulting firm, right? The idea for Percona first was really around the consulting. Something what kind of surprised me when I came to the United States was if you think about this technology consulting culture, where I thought, oh my gosh, those people are paid a big bucks, often like hundreds of dollars an hour. They are really have sort of acting in the best of client of who hired them. But then I discovered actually in many cases, they are sort of like a glorified salespeople, right? You work for a company and they really have the product to sell. So they don't really have those fiduciary duties, right? Of acting the best interest of a customer, even though they're paid by that. And I was really appalled by this situation. It's like, how can something like that be happening in the United States. That's not what you see in the movies when you are <laughs> growing up in the, in the Soviet Union. So I decided when I start your corner, we really will have that unapologetically customer-focused approach. Hey, we are doing consulting and we are doing what's right for you with no ifs and buts. That was uh, really the cornerstone of what your corner was about. And I think we were very successful with that. We developed a lot of a good reputation by saying how things are, right? And if we offend somebody's feelings, well, so be it. <laughs> Fair enough. So your penchant for telling it like it is became a core part of your business? That makes sense. And how did you get your initial customers? Even before I started your corner, I started the blog. First on LiveJournal, then I moved it to a domain called MySchoolPerformanceBlog.com. I also spoke at some conferences and so on and so forth. So in our little niche, I was the known expert in the MySQL and MySQL performance. And when you are starting a small company in a consulting space, it doesn't take a lot to fill your pipeline. 
In fact, in the early days at Kirkwana, we didn't even have a company website. I just put this little link on our blog, say, we do MySQL consulting, which would just say, hey, we can do consulting and suggest to send me an email. And that kept us busy. I think it was so busy. I know what I wasn't even replying to all emails at the time. I didn't have any, any tracking system early on. So uh, sometimes you would get something like, oh, I sent you like a third email. I'm sending you. Can we please finally get some help? This right here is the key to Peter's entrepreneurial success story. Notice how he didn't look around for a big popular market and then figure out how to launch a product into it, which is how a lot of the entrepreneurs I talk with approach building their startups. Instead, Peter established himself as an expert on a niche topic in an important industry. By doing that, he solved the most important challenge in building companies, which is the challenge of getting a steady, reliable stream of customers. In other words, if you needed help scaling your MySQL database, you were going to find Peter. True, there aren't a ton of people in the world who need help scaling their MySQL databases to accommodate millions of users, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that the ones who do need help need it urgently and have the resources to pay. That type of customer is fantastic. It's the kind of customer that makes a great foundation for building a successful business. I did not expect corner to grow as large as it is now. I kind of thought, hey, you know what, we'll do this consulting business for a bit of time until I figure out something else. As frankly, it's kind of relatively typical for many experts to do. Uh, but then uh, I think partly because it was the right place, kind of the right time, it uh, grew on me. Relatively soon after uh, Pircona was started, the MySQL was acquired by Sun, and that's kind of get the company into this kind of chaotic transitioning, which happens with acquisitions. And then that Sun was acquired by Oracle, which was even bigger deal because remember, in the early days of MySQL, Oracle was arch enemy. We were out there to kick Larry's butt. That would be Larry Ellison's butt, by the way, founder of Oracle and one of the top five or 10 richest people in the world. And now, Larry owns the whole company. Many people were leaving and there was a lot of uncertainty. And so Pircona as this alternative, right, where you can go and not deal with all that Sun, Oracle, MySQL drama, but get a great quality services, that was very attractive. So that was a great time for us. But MySQL is still open source, right? Meaning anyone can use it free of charge. So how are you making money by supporting it? You know, there is a great expression I like about the open source. Some people say, hey, so what does free means in open source? Is it free as in freedom? Or is it free as in beer? And the answer is both. But I think first and foremost, it is free as in puppy. And what I mean by that is like, you can pick up puppy virtually for free, but then that puppy will take a lot of your time and money to keep it happy. The same applies to the open source software. It's maybe free, but in the end it requires a lot of care. And that care, you can either do it yourself, 
but many companies don't have that expertise or time. Or you can hire somebody like Hercona to help instead. That is a whole value proposition, if you will. It seems worth pausing to point out that here, Peter is basically explaining the open source business model. Lots of people think open source means hobbyist programmers sharing knowledge for the good of humanity. And I suppose that's true sometimes, but in terms of the bigger open source projects, tools like MySQL and Red Hat Linux and WordPress, open source is kind of like a Trojan horse. It lets software companies establish themselves inside of other businesses for little or no upfront cost. And the monetization opportunity comes on the back end as those businesses scale their usage of the software. Not coincidentally, as Peter mentioned earlier, this is why MySQL thrived in the wake of the dot-com bust. And to Percona's advantage, a similar thing happened again a few years later. Frankly, another important luck factor was, and uh, I hope you guys don't hate me for that, but the Great Recession was another fantastic thing for us, and I think in open source in general, because uh, then people suddenly did not have any money for ultra expensive commercial software. They were looking at open source alternatives, such as MySQL, and especially at some more agile and lower cost companies like Percona, who could help them to make things happen. When I was researching Percona, I couldn't help but notice that you've expanded beyond consulting services and launched your own open source software projects for MySQL, as well as other databases like MongoDB. Is it safe to assume that's your way of capitalizing on the open source software model beyond just consulting? Well, that's right. So in the early days, we just did the service. We'll help people to fix problems, tune database, and so on and so on. But then you discover what by this kind of configuration and application, you can go only so much. There are some problems which are inside the database kernel, which require solutions in that database kernel as well. And that's how we started to build our own software, like pretty much to fix the need, fix a problem which we could not get fixed any other way. And from that, the Percona software was born. And uh, now, obviously, a number of years later, we have pretty much their open source platform which covers both MySQL, MongoDB, and Postgres. And uh, a lot of our value proposition is having the features, which you only can find in proprietary versions outside of Percon. To have your own open source software projects? I mean, that's a big undertaking, right? So it's obviously not just you consulting anymore. How big is the Percona team at this point? Yeah, so we are about 250 people. So we are not huge. If you compare us to our competition, like Oracle, for example, we are tiny, but we are obviously much larger than two-person startup, which we were back in 2006. And you're the CEO of Percona, right? As someone who's clearly more of a tech guy than a business guy, how have you approached the CEO role? Well, yes, I mean... It is interesting. I was for years thinking what kind of CEO I can be. And frankly, I did not work for many companies and didn't have many role models. 
I had a CEO model of uh, Martin Nikas, CEO of MySQL AB. And he was very fantastic uh, CEO, like very articulated, well-spoken with a uh, look of Brad Pitt. So uh, really that's kind of, I would say, like a quintessential CEO, right? He was very good in front of investor, broad room and so on and so forth, right? But then I thought, it is kind of not me. I am more of a geeky, nerdy guy. Frankly, I like computers much more than people because you know what? You tell them what to do, right? And if you write the right code, they will follow that religiously, right? Then people are messy, people are complicated. So for me, I was kind of taking a different path, which I think as an entrepreneur and as the sort of like a controlling shareholder you have is to build the team which is built around your strengths and weaknesses, right? So I probably much more than conventional CEO, at least more than Martin Mikas was involved in the technology. I still speak on technology topic in a lot of the conferences, talk to our customers directly, right? And I typically go toe to toe with a lot of technical people, but I have a very senior operational finance salespeople. So they can run those parts of a business with a very little supervision from my side. Okay. You've surrounded yourself with great business talent. That makes sense. The other thing I noticed as I was learning about Bricona prior to chatting with you is that you're an entirely remote company with employees scattered around the world. What's that like? Oh, well, I think a lot of the cool stuff in our case comes from being such a diverse and organization. We have people from like 35 different countries or so, and it is amazing how big difference there is in a different cultures and what you can find and discover, right? I remember, for example, discussion with Slack about one guy who was saying, well, you know what, I want a second wife, but I'm not sure how should I approach my first wife about that topic. Stuff like that, which is like, wow, you know, that is not something you would expect as an American water cooler conversation. No, definitely not any water cooler conversations I've had. But speaking of American water cooler conversations, you did eventually make it back to the States, right? Why'd you decide to return? Yes, yeah, so I mentioned the company was started in UK, mid-2000s. And uh, now Europe and the UK, they have much more active startup scene. At that time, that wasn't the case. I could get a business out there, but it was like, Peter, put on the suit and uh, go and do some boring things for a month in some sort of bank or insurance company in the London city, where my interest in customers were in US. That's where people were like doing some cool stuff and they have added, hey, you know what? Like, okay, let us try to completely reimagine our database or weekends. So that was much more fun. So we thought, hey, you know what? Maybe we should go back to the States. And that's what we did. Right. You and I clearly have very different ideas of fun. Re-imaging my database architecture in a weekend is not very high on my list. But, you know, I guess that makes me wonder, are you really that passionate about databases? I mean, you're clearly someone whose technical skills could be applied to all sorts of things. 
Why build a company around databases? What makes that such a great entrepreneurial opportunity? You know, like a saying, in the gold rush, most money is made by, say, shovels. And the database is a shovel. When it comes to our modern world, when we are building more and more apps to process more and more information. And that right there is the other piece to Peter and Percona's success that's important to highlight. Peter didn't just specialize in a niche market. There are plenty of niche markets out there that don't have lots of room for growth. For example, did you know there's an entire market of people who collect the sticker labels from bananas? Seriously, Google it. Obviously, there's not a ton of room for growth in that market. In contrast, Peter recognized that being an expert in database optimization was serving a niche market, but it was a niche market tied to a much bigger market. Or as Peter puts it, it's like being a shovel seller during a gold rush. Yes, it's a bit of a business cliche that during a gold rush, you want to be the person selling shovels. But as the story of Bercona reminds us, it's good advice. So if nothing else, I hope you appreciated the reminder. I know I did. Which is why I want to thank Peter Zaitsev for sharing the story of Bercona. If you're one of those few people in this world looking for regular thoughts, tips, and tricks about the best ways to support and scale your MySQL database so it can reach millions of users, you can follow Peter on Twitter. He's at Peter Zaitsev. While you're on Twitter, be sure to let us know what you thought of this episode. We're at Webmasters Pod. I'm on Twitter too, at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. And you can also find me on Medium.com, where I write lots of articles about startups, entrepreneurship, and building internet businesses. Another quick thanks to Ryan Higgs, our sound engineer, and a thanks to our sponsor, Latonas. Don't forget to check out Latonas.com if you happen to be interested in buying or selling an internet business. Also, if you happen to be interested in hearing more from some of the internet's most important and impactful innovators, be sure to subscribe to Webmasters in your podcasting app of choice, because we'll be releasing another episode in just a few days. But for now, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. And could you tell me where the name Percona came from? Oh, where the name Percona comes from? Well, uh, I have a great grandfather from Italy called Francesca Percona. And when I discovered that, I thought that would be a wonderful company name with an Italian zing to that. Do you like the story? Yeah, I guess. Not what I expected, but I guess I didn't really know what to expect, so I suppose it's as reasonable as anything else. Well, and that is absolutely bullshit. Right? That is not where Percona name comes from. I like telling that, right, and see how many people react. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You're ridiculous. Now I understand why you annoyed a lot of people. <laughs> What is a funny thing is I recently by chance found a person, Francesca Percona. There seems to be such person existed, right? So it's like, wow, uh, that's even funny. But anyway, really Percona comes from performance consultants. That's what it stands for, right? And then I added A because I think it's kind of sounded later compared to Percon. And I think because there was like already the company name and domain was taken by some vacuum cleaner manufacturer or something. So, 
uh, yeah, that's where company name comes from. You should stick with the first story. I think I liked it better. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, if only truth didn't matter. <laughs>